0: If you have your Bibles with you, hope you do, let's go back to the book of Mark together. Mark chapter 9. If you don't have a Bible with you, you should see a blue one underneath the chair in front of you. Um, it's a bit of a reach with all this social distancing, but uh, you go ahead and grab that. Uh, grab that. We want to read the Word of God together. It is powerful. Um, it is important. It builds faith. If you need a Bible, take that blue one home with you. If you know someone who needs a Bible, go ahead and take that blue one home and give it to them. We love giving those Bibles away. We're going to be in Mark chapter 9. Mark is the second book in the New Testament, a biography about Jesus. It is towards the back of the Bible, second book of the New Testament. Go ahead and open that one up with us. Um, Are you, let me ask a personal question. We ask a personal question in a group of 100 people. Uh, Are you great? Are you great? Who is the greatest person you know? And is he standing right here? No, he's not. But who is the greatest person that you know? And then when you think about the greatest person you know, what makes them so great? What makes them someone worthy of respect, of Of high honor. What makes someone worthy of first place? Or being elevated, put on a pedestal. What makes them worthy of that? There's something deep down in us, deep down in the human heart, that longs for greatness. Do you feel it? Do you long for greatness? Do you long to be called worthy of respect? Do you long for that like I do? I think we all do, and this has been the case for the human heart for thousands of years. In fact, in Jesus' day, in Jesus' day, there were religious sects that would all gather once a year to reevaluate everyone's worth and everyone's social status. How would you like that? Next week, when you come to church, we're going to rank everybody from first to last. Would you like that? Some of us might because we think we'll be number one. But no, I wouldn't like that. No. Can you imagine? They would rank each other once a year to determine where a person could sit. We'll rank you next week, and Walter will be right down front because he's number one. Maybe that's the last, that's spit range, right? So maybe that's last place goes right there. Sorry, I, I promise I won't. I won't. They determine where a person could sit. They they determine your social status that one day a year to determine how great you are determines when or if you could speak. Now, we might not have an official day to determine greatness, although I think we could argue that maybe Tuesday was that day to determine greatness. We might not have a specific day, but I believe the rules probably remain the same. Perhaps the greatest person is the wealthiest. Jeff Bezos, Amazon, net worth of $188 billion. What do you do with that much money? I don't know, but I'd be willing to try to find out, wouldn't you? Is that the greatest? Perhaps the greatest person is the most powerful. Perhaps the greatest person is most powerful. Perhaps it's Donald Trump. And then in a month, it will be Joe Biden. Maybe that determines who is the greatest. Or maybe it's the most beloved. Maybe it's someone like Mother Teresa or some famous celebrity. I like Tom Hanks. You like Tom Hanks? No one can not like Tom Hanks. Maybe he's the greatest. Maybe it's the greatest athlete. You know where I'm gonna, who I'm going to say. Patrick Mahomes. we got a Patrick Mahomes jersey right in the back there too. Maybe Patrick Mahomes is the greatest. And you fill in the blank. Maybe you think the greatest person would be the greatest mother. The greatest father. The hardest worker. The smartest sibling. However exactly we tabulate the scores, we want greatness, and we want others to recognize how great we are. Or maybe... You're in another camp. Maybe you've just surrendered to the idea that you'll never be great. You're still playing the game. But maybe that's where you are. Well, the world might have a million different ways to determine who is great. We might have a million different ways running through our minds to determine who is great. But as believers, who do we need to go to 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 set the rules for the game? The king of kings we need to see jesus who does jesus consider great would jesus consider me great who does jesus think ranks the highest let me let me pray over god's word and then we're going to read together mark chapter 9 big number 9 starting at little number 33 let me pray over this time father we are hearing from our king Father, may I be a herald for the words of the King. Father, empower me to be able to say what You want to say. No more and no less. May we hear from our King clearly. And Father, may we strive for greatness in the eyes of Jesus. May this church strive to be great in the eyes of Jesus. It's in His name we pray. Amen. Let's read together. Who does Jesus think is great? Mark chapter 9, verse 33 goes like this. And they came to Capernaum. And when he was in the house, he asked them, what were you discussing on the way? But they kept silent. For on the way they had argued with one another about who was the greatest. And he sat down and called the twelve and he said to them, if anyone would be first... He must be the last of all and servant of all. And He took a child and He put him in the midst of them. And then taking him in His arms, He said to them, whoever receives one such child in My name receives Me. And whoever receives Me receives not Me, but Him who sent Me. Okay, we're going to stop right there. Who's great? Well, we might tabulate the scores different, but we know how the disciples were determining who was different. We know we, we could figure out who they thought was the greatest. The disciples thought, this is, what, this is who greatness is for the disciples. The greatest disciple is this. Whoever went up the mountain with Jesus... To see Moses, Elijah, and Elijah, and to hear from God the Father, and to see the cloud of the glory of God fall on Jesus, and then to hear God's voice say, this is my son, listen to him, and whoever saw on the mountain, whoever saw Jesus' face shine like the sun, that must be who is the greatest. If you'll remember, beginning of chapter 9, Jesus picked three disciples out of the 12 and said, you come with me. And so what's happening here is as they are on the journey to Capernaum, Jesus maybe is in the front leading. Maybe he's in the back speaking to someone and the disciples are walking and, and we had this amazing transfiguration event. And you got to imagine the conversation between the disciples. It might go something like this. Peter might say, hey, Andrew, come here. Did you hear? You hear? I went up the mountain with Jesus. You hear what happened? I met Moses. What do you think about that? And Andrew might say, "Yeah, I heard. I heard you didn't meet him. I heard you saw him, and I heard you embarrassed yourself." And Peter might go, hey, "That I don't know who. I don't know who told you that." But that's not the point. The point is Jesus picked me, and I went up the mountain. Must be a pretty big deal. What do you think? And Andrew might say, you son of a gun, I knew you were going to bring this up. That doesn't mean anything. You just got lucky. You just picked three random disciples and went up the mountain. Or perhaps Peter got a big head, like I imagine I might, and maybe he was starting to think he's number two. He's Maybe he's bossing everyone around. All right, we're going to Capernaum. All right, uh, James, you get the bread. Now you get the money bag. Make sure you get the fish. Everybody, let's go. This is the order maybe he's getting to be a little bit bossy. We don't know exactly how this happened, but that's what sparked it. Peter, James, and John must be feeling pretty good about themselves. And the other nine might be feeling a bit left out. So they come into this house. Jesus knows what they're arguing about. Either because He heard them, maybe He was within earshot, they didn't realize it. Or maybe it's just because he knows all things. Either, either way, it works. He says, what were you arguing about? A room full of young men. What do you argue about? And it kind of happens like this. You ever, you ever leave your kids to play and you go in the other room and you hear a crash and you come in, you see the lamp all shattered on the floor and you say, who did this? And then nobody says a word. That's kind of the picture here, right? Snitches get stitches. You with me? My kids are starting to say that to each other. They learned it from their mama. They learned it from me. right? Nobody says anything. They've been caught arguing about who is the greatest. So Jesus, as he does, wise as he is, loving as he is, he never misses an opportunity for a life-changing parable. He says, you've been arguing about who is the greatest. I'm going to tell you who is the greatest. If anyone would be first, He must be last of all, and servant of all. It's a simple sentence. It's a short sentence. But in that sentence, Jesus reverses every idea we have about human greatness. Jesus says to truly understand the universe to truly understand people as God understands people, don't be impressed with the biggest bank account. Don't be impressed with the most business success or the highest political office or the largest house or the most friends or the most people to boss around or the biggest IQ, don't be impressed with that. The king of the kingdom of God declares that we have had greatness exactly wrong. Exactly wrong. For the only standard that matters, God's standard, for the only place that will matter for eternity, the kingdom of heaven, and in the only opinion that matters, Jesus's. the one who is truly great will make himself last. The one who is truly great Will make himself a servant of all. Short sentence. Just sent the disciples' whole worldview spinning out of control. And Jesus explains himself. He, he says that sentence and then he shows it. He plays out this parable. And this is how he played out the parable. Psst, hey, hey, come here. Yeah, come here. He goes and he gets. They might be in Peter's house. Peter's from Capernaum. Maybe this is Peter's son. He says, hey, Joshua, come here. Three-year-old little Joshua, come here. Yeah, it's okay. I know these guys are scary guys, but come here. I know we're talking. It's pretty intense. But come here. And he comes. He takes little Joshua, and he sets them. He sets him in the middle of the disciples. And this parable. This child is the parable teaching us who is truly great. So what is He saying? Here you go, Joshua. You stand, stand there, and you kind of imagine that they probably just stood. Maybe Jesus just stood there and He's just playing with the kid. Talking with the kid. Ruffling his hair. Waiting to that moment where it gets awkward. Those are some of the best teaching moments, right? Waiting until it gets awkward. What's He trying to teach us and teach the disciples exactly? This child is a visual representation of what we will look like when we are first in the kingdom of God. There's three reasons for that. There's three reasons for this child being the perfect example. The first one, children are always in the last place. For the Israelite culture, for the ancient world, children were last in importance. They were expendable. They did not contribute anything. We have the luxury of elevating our children really high because we don't have to worry so much about food, about clothing, and about shelter. We've got that taken care of. Back then, they had mouths to feed. Back then, children were expendable. You don't know if that child is going to last the winter. Don't get as attached. They were last. In fact, this will explain to you how little Joshua here, whatever his name was, how well, how good of a parable he is. In Aramaic, the word child and the word servant is the same word. They are the least likely to be served. They are last place. They are least thought of. And Jesus says, if you are to be great in the kingdom of God, this is what you look like. Last. Servant. Least likely to be served. To be great is to place others ahead of ourselves. So if that's the idea, this is to be great, to be like this child who is in last place, let me ask you this. How are American Christians doing with greatness? Are American Christians known for seeking last place or first place? When non-believers think of the American church, do they think of a church that is desperate to put others ahead of themselves? When non-believers think of the American church, they often think of the things that we are against or the things that, that we are trying to pursue Things like abortion and marriage, protesting righteousness, lawsuits about the Ten Commandments. These are things that go out among the world. And these are things that they think of when they think of American church. And those are good things. Are they not? Those are good things. But in our pursuit for these things, are we also known for trying to be last place among our neighbors? do non-believers see servants of all when they think of the American church? I'm afraid that's not what they think. If we achieve all the political victories we seek, and I pray that we do, if we achieve all those, but we are not servants of all, we are not great. Are you with me? And my suspicion is if we are servants of all, the political victories will come easier. Are you with me? How are we seen to the world? Are we seeking to be the last? Are we seeking to be the Joshua of the world. To be great, Jesus says, is to place others ahead of ourselves and then be content where we are. And we could be content where we are because we have Jesus. Are you with me? That's the entire point here. You're going to be a child. You're, you're going to seek to, to be powerless. You're going to seek to put others ahead of you. You're going to seek to be in last place. And you are going to be content because you have Jesus. We are content to be in last place because that's where Jesus is. Was he not servant of all? Was there anyone who had total power and yet gave it all up to hang on a cross? Was there anyone more powerless than Jesus when he hung on the cross? We're okay being last because Jesus is last. And we want Jesus. We love being a servant of all because we see our dad, Jesus, being servants of all. We can be in last place. We can be content because we have Jesus. So are we pursuing first place or last place are we pursuing worldly greatness or worldly weakness to be great in the eyes of the world to be great in our own eyes is to be last in the eyes of Jesus and this is great news this is great news because that means we can be poor and be great Isn't that good news Isn't good news? That means we can be dumb and be great. Isn't that good news? Good news for me. We can be powerless and be great. How does the persecuted church do it? How can they do it? How can the Chinese underground church do it when every time they turn around, the government rips the cross off their building? How can they do it? How can they do it and not just abandon the Christian faith? Because they realize that greatness is about being last. That's great news. That's great news. To be great in the eyes of Jesus, it's worth repeating because it is... The main point, to be great in the eyes of Jesus is to place others ahead of ourselves and we can be content in that because we have Jesus. Paul says it this way in a letter to a church in Philippi. He says, I have learned to be content whatever the circumstances. I know what it is to be in need. I know what it is to have plenty. I have learned the secret of being content in any and every situation. Whether well-fed or hungry, whether living in plenty or want, this is the secret. You ready? This is the secret to contentment. I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. It's not about that verse is not about throwing touchdown passes. It's about saying, I can be last. I can be persecuted. I can be hungry because greatness is not about wealth or prosperity. It's about having Jesus, and I have Jesus. I have Jesus. Joshua is the perfect example because children don't rank people. How is he the example for greatness in the kingdom? How are we supposed to be like this little three year old boy? Well, children don't rank people. I've got a three year old. And we teach children to rank others pretty quickly. But my three year old, I haven't corrupted her at this point. So, Charlie, she doesn't, she, she, You're a person, people are fun to play with, so you are fun to play with. She doesn't care what you look like, she doesn't care your skin color, she doesn't care your bank account, she doesn't care any of that. You're a person and people are good. She loves you. That's children. That's what makes Christians great if we are like children The disciples are busy ranking one another based on perceived value, but young children say, you're a person. You're valuable. And they don't have the theology to get down deep in that, but they say, you're a person, you're valuable. Guess what? God believes the same thing. You're a person, you're valuable. Why? You're made in the image of God and that makes you unbelievably valuable. No matter your IQ, no matter your bank account, no matter anything else, that is what makes you more valuable than every star in the universe. You're made in the image of God. So think about it. Where do those around you rank? Who has a high place of honor in your mind and why? And how about our church? How about our church? Who ranks highly in our church? Churches are notorious to rank by rank, to rank people by size of their tithe, by how long they've been at church, by how loud we can complain. Churches are notorious for having a culture of loyalty. I've earned this. I'm the number one spot. Churches are notorious for a culture of loyalty instead of a culture of love. And a culture of love knows this. Every person who walks through that door is of infinite value because they're made in the image of God. And because Christ Jesus died for them and calls to them, all who repent and turn to Me will be saved. They're of infinite value. Doesn't matter what they can offer this church. Doesn't matter what's in their bank account. Doesn't matter how smart they are. Doesn't matter their talent. Doesn't matter any of that. If they walk through those doors, they are all tied for first place. That's how children think. That's how children think. A great church in the eyes of Jesus will be a church that embraces every believer as if they are the most important person on the planet. And they will embrace every non-believer as if they are made in the image of God and we are desperate to be with them forever. Poor, rich, new, old, young, old, all equally embraced. A church filled with children are going to see a new face come through the door and say, emergency! Emergency! They're going to see someone sitting by themselves say, emergency! The image of God is sitting by themselves. We need to make sure they are embraced and loved in this place. You're a person, you're fun, I'm gonna play with you. That's what Charlie would think. That's how we need to think. Children don't rank people The third reason that Jesus uses Joshua, whatever his name was, sitting right here, is that children are safe. Why should Christians pursue being being childlike? Because children are safe. I never worry about what a child is thinking about me. I'm not worried that a three-year-old is judging me. I'm not worried that a three-year-old is scheming against me or gossiping or slandering I'm not worried about a three-year-old having malicious intent. Children put us at ease. You can let your guard down around a child. You can feel safe around children. While those disciples are tensely arguing and competing for our orders in line, children are at ease. So Christian, do you put other people at ease? Christian, does your presence make others feel safe because they know that you have no ill intent towards them? That you are not silently judging them or verbally judging them? Is this a church filled with Christians that put people at ease? If we're going to see God make a thousand faithful followers through Trinity, we must be a people that is safe. You know, one of the big reasons why we must be a safe people, why people must come in and not feel judged, not feel harmed, feel embraced. One of the reasons is the gospel is dangerous. Jesus just told us, to follow me, you must take up your own cross. To follow me, you must repent, turn from your sin and come to Christ. To follow me, you might lose your family. The gospel is dangerous. The gospel is offensive. So God's people must not be. If we must offend, may it be the gospel that we proclaim. That is why children are first. To be to be like the child is to be great in the kingdom of God. And this child is not just our example for living. This child is not just our example for living. But this child is also a test to see if we are living as great in the kingdom of God. I love this picture. This might be my favorite part of the whole passage. He sets he sets little Joshua, little three-year-old Joshua down. All these men are looking, it's getting kind of awkward. Jesus is letting it sink in. You are like this child. You are like this servant. You are last place. That makes you great in the kingdom of God. They're thinking, they're chewing on it. And then Jesus breaks the silence like this. He comes and he says, hey, come here. And he picks the child up and puts him in his arms. Isn't that a beautiful picture? And he says, whoever embraces this child, he's probably rocking and patting him on the back, whoever embraces this child embraces me. And whoever embraces me embraces my father. So not only are we to be like this child, not only is the child our example, but the child is a test to determine if we are living as great in the kingdom. Scooping this child up in His arms. For that picture of the King of kings, Creator of the universe, don't He have better things to do? No. Everything in the universe hangs on the Word of His power, the Scripture says. And He stoops down and picks up the lowest of the low. The last place. Isn't that beautiful? Those who are great are like children and those who are great will embrace the lowly. There is nothing more dignified. There is nothing more dignified than for a believer in Jesus Christ to embrace the lowest of the low of society. Nothing more dignified. Think about the picture. Those 12 men, thinking they're going to be some political hotshots, thinking they're going to be some religious hotshots, doing something important, sees their rabbi pick up a child? Be more dignified. Be more dignified, Jesus. We should be spending our time with the Pharisees trying to convince them that you're the Messiah. Put that child down. No, he's got nothing better to do because there is nothing better to do than to embrace the lowly. We know that. We see Jesus. That is the greatest thing in the world because Jesus said so, but also because Jesus did it. The greatest man who ever lived did it constantly. He was embracing lepers. He was embracing tax collectors who are traitors to Israel. He was embracing adulterous women. He was embracing Pharisees. He was embracing demon-possessed men. And what is the nail in the coffin? What is the nail in the coffin of the argument that to embrace the lowly is to be great? What's the nail in the coffin? Jesus embraces you. That's the final argument. You have to be convinced. This should convince you. Jesus embraces you. In our sinfulness, in our rebellion against God, we don't get lower. And the King of kings, Lord of lords, Spins the stars in the sky. Creates all things. Everything hangs on His Word. Everything was created by Him and for Him. That King of kings came down, stooped down into our muck and mire and picked you up as He picked that child up. That's how He saved you. Paul will say it like this in Romans 5, For while we were enemies, we were reconciled to God by the death of His Son. Romans 5.8, but God shows His own love for us in this. While we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Greatness is by being a servant of the worst of the worst, the lowest of the low. Lowest of the low. So, if Christ has embraced you like when He picked up that little child, it's okay. Okay. I'll take care of you. If he embraced you that way, who are you too good to embrace, Christian? For them, it was a child, expendable, doesn't contribute, dies often and early. Are you embracing the children of your society? Perfect timing. Are you embracing the children of your society? And yes, that means literal children, but it also means the people who are lowest of the low to the world. And it also means the people who are lowest of the low to your own heart. And so let's do this. Let's end right here. Let's end with this question. I've grown up in churches like ours. Intimately familiar with American Southern Baptist Evangelical Christianity, oh, intimately familiar with the heart of someone who doesn't love everyone like he should. Let's ask ourselves these questions. You want to know if you if Jesus sees you as great. This is a great place to begin. Are you embracing and serving Democrats? be an equal opportunity offender. Are you embracing and serving Republicans? I don't think there's an asterisk in the back that says be a servant of all except in 2020 with all the crazy political stuff. You can leave that aside. It's not what it says. Christian, are you embracing and serving Muslims? Is there an exception? No. Are we embracing and serving poor people? Are we embracing and serving people on welfare? Are we embracing and serving mask wearers? Are we embracing and serving non-mask wearers? Are we embracing and serving old people? I know we don't have any of those in the room, but if they were here, would we embrace them and serve them? Are we embracing and serving young people? Young people like me who are going to make boneheaded mistakes church are you embracing us are you embracing people with different opinions than yourself are you embracing and serving people with different skin color than yourself different cultural backgrounds than yourself church are we embracing and serving the church around the world who's under persecution are we serving them or is that their own problem as an American church, is the wealthiest church the world has ever seen. The safest church the world has ever seen. Are we embracing the lowly churches around the world? A church that, that gets this. Could we be real with each other. A church that gets this a church that proclaims the Gospel clearly from the pulpit, from the singing, from the Sunday school, from the small groups, a church that proclaims the Gospel clearly and doesn't back it up by loving the lowly, that church will not change this community. The church that changes this community is going to proclaim the Gospel and then live it out. Say, Jesus embraced me when I was lonely. Can I embrace you? So, church, let's grab on to the eternal greatness by living the Gospel out, by seeking to be in the last place, by elevating others and serving the the lowly. That church will change the world. I'm asking the worship team to come forward. I'm asking the worship team to come forward. Really clear, easy questions. Really clear, easy questions. Are you embracing the lowly? In your heart, when I say the word Democrat or Republican, what is going on in your heart when I say that? What goes on in your heart when you think about rich people or poor people? What goes on in your heart when you think about Muslims? What goes on in your heart when you think about other people groups? What goes on in your heart Let that be a test to see if Jesus would call you great in the kingdom of God. And do you understand that Jesus has picked you up, Christian, and loves you as He would that child? A non-believer, do you realize that Jesus longs to bend down, pick you up from your sin, and save you? During this song, I want to encourage you, do work with God. Examine your own heart. Let Him change your heart toward these lowly people. During this song, do work with God. If you are not in the arms of Jesus, repent and believe. Would you stand with us as we sing together?